0: Whether it's Baker's Simple Truth Turkey or mac and cheese with Murray's English Cheddar or pie made with fresh Cosmic Crisp apples, there are many dishes we look forward to sharing during the holidays. And Baker's has all the fresh ingredients you need to turn today's holidays into tomorrow's memories. Baker's, fresh for everyone. And right now, you can save when you shop your faves. Just buy six or more participating sale items and save 50 cents each with your card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Jean-Jacques de Morgan was a French mining engineer and archaeologist whose work during the late 19th and early 20th century made an indelible impact on our knowledge of history. He was the director of antiquities in Egypt during the 19th century. He also worked at dig sites in Stonehenge, Persepolis, as well as Russian Armenia. Perhaps his most famous find came in 1901 during an archaeological expedition to Persia to excavate the Elamite capital of Susa. There, he discovered the pieces of a two-and-a-half-meter-high black diorite pillar, also known as a steel. It's believed the steel was broken into three pieces during the mid-12th century B.C. by the Elamite king Shutrik Nahante as the spoils of war. The steel was packed up and shipped to the Louvre in Paris, and within a year the words inscribed on it had been translated and revealed something remarkable. They were a series of 282 edicts written by the ancient Babylonian king Hammurabi, who reigned in central Mesopotamia from 1792 to 1750 BC. At the time it was rediscovered in 1901 by Jacques de Morgan, the Code of Hammurabi was believed to be the earliest known set of written laws in existence. In subsequent years, other, even older Mesopotamian laws, including the Sumerian Lipit ushtar and ur have been found, but to this day, many history books still cite the Code of Hammurabi as the first. Even the United States Supreme Court building features Hammurabi on the marble carvings of historical lawmakers. The code itself is written in a series of if-then statements. For example, if a man steals an ox, then he must pay back 30 times its value. The code also expresses different levels of justice for different parts of society, A doctor's fee for curing a wound would be ten silver shekels for a man of wealth, five shekels for a freedman, and two for a slave. Likewise, the penalties for malpractice follow a similar form. If a doctor killed a rich patient, he would have his hands cut off, while they'd only be forced to pay financial restitution if they killed a slave. It's through the Code of Hammurabi that we get the long-standing idea of an eye for an eye in many historical systems of justice. Curiously, although the Code of Hammurabi lays out 25 crimes that were punishable by death, murder wasn't one of them. The first death sentence to appear in the historical record occurred in Egypt during the 16th century BC. In this case, a nobleman was accused of sorcery and was ordered to take his own life. Over the centuries that followed, the death penalty would appear again and again in assorted written laws. We can find examples of the death penalty in the 14th century B.C. Hittite Code, and again in the rather draconian Code of Athens from the 7th century B.C., which made the penalty death for every crime committed. In the 5th century B.C., the Roman Law of the Twelve Tablets codified the death penalty. Something we see in the Roman Law that gets repeated throughout history as well is having a different code of ethics being prescribed for people from different social classes and ethnicities. In ancient Rome, you could be put to death for publishing libel, singing insulting songs, or even cutting down another farmer's crops. The Romans reserved a particularly unusual punishment for people accused of murdering their parents. Someone accused of patricide would be submersed in water in a sack that also contained a dog, a rooster, a viper, and an ape. Yeah, I don't really understand that one either. The Romans had all sorts of cruel means of putting people to death, including drowning at sea, burying someone alive, beating them to death, impalement, and of course, crucifixion. By the 10th century, hanging from the gallows became the most common method of putting people to death throughout much of Europe, although death by torture took a close second. Over the following centuries, women would often be burned alive for capital offenses, while beheading became the preferred method for members of the noble class. Under the reign of Henry VIII, it's estimated that as many as 72,000 people were put to death, some of whom were executed with yet another novel method, boiling them to death. I think you get the idea. From the guillotine to the firing range, to the gas chamber to the electric chair and lethal injection... Time marches on, and we human beings continue to refine the methods and reasons for execution. The problem is that along the way, many mistakes have occurred. This, of course, creates quite a dilemma considering the finality of the act. What happens when the axe swing is off? Or when the execution machine malfunctions? Or the condemned individual refuses to die? Perhaps worst of all, what happens when the person put to death is completely innocent. I'm Nate Hale, and I regret that I have but one life to give for this podcast. And this is The Conspirators. Lady Margaret Pole was just about as blue-blooded royal as they come. She was the daughter of George the Duke of Clarence, one of Edward IV's younger brothers, and was of the House of York. Within the first twelve years of Margaret's long life, she would live to see the death of Edward IV, as well as the disappearance of his sons Edward V and Richard Duke of York, Richard III taking control of the crown, and the Battle of Bosworth Field that would allow Henry VII to seize the throne. After the Tudor family came to power, the remaining members of the House of York were dealt with by a combination of execution, imprisonment, or simply marrying them off. Margaret's brother Edward, who himself had a claim to the throne by birth, spent the remainder of his days in the tower before finally being executed in 1499. When Henry VIII inherited the throne in 1509, Margaret's fortunes grew. She became employed in the service of Catherine of Aragorn, Henry's wife, and the newly anointed queen. In 1512 she was granted the title of Countess of Salisbury, which, once again, gave her family a royal title. But things went sour when Margaret disavowed Henry VIII's scheme to acknowledge himself the supreme head of the new Church of England, and divorce Catherine so that he could marry Anne Boleyn. Margaret remained a devout Catholic, as did her son Reginald. During the seismic split Henry VIII brought to the church, Reginald fled abroad. Since he remained out of the king's reach, Henry settled for the next best thing and ordered Margaret be arrested and taken to the tower. She was 65 years old at the time. Two years later, on the morning of May 27, 1541, a guard arrived at Margaret's cell door to inform her that she would be dead within an hour. She tried professing her innocence, stating that she had never even been accused of any crime, nor had she ever been put through a trial. But her pleas fell on deaf ears, and soon she was led to the executioner's block. The problem was the regular executioner was away that day, fighting in one of King Henry's wars. That left them scrambling to find a replacement. They settled on someone they probably shouldn't have seeing as later on they dubbed him a, quote, blundering idiot. They laid Margaret's head down on the chopping block and the executioner hefted the axe overhead. Was the axe too heavy? Was he drunk that day? Was the sun in his eyes? We may never know. But when Lady Margaret's executioner swung the axe down on his first savage swing, he missed her head entirely, chopping down into her shoulder instead. He tried again, and missed again, and this time brought the blade down into the middle of her back. He yanked the axe out and tried again, and again. In front of about 150 onlookers, the executioner hacked away at Lady Margaret a total of 11 times before finally managing to decapitate her. Sadly, this wouldn't be the first time in history an execution went horribly wrong because of a blundering executioner, nor would it be the last. During the late 1800s, Tom Blackjack Ketchum had made a name for himself as a real, honest-to-goodness Old West outlaw. He and his gang marauded their way across New Mexico and Texas, holding up trains and robbing stores, saloons, and post offices. But by 1900, all of the Ketchum gang had either been killed off or been arrested, leaving Tom all by his lonesome. He tried one last train holdup just outside of Folsom, New Mexico, but the conductor was able to get the drop on him, and Tom was soon carted away to jail. After a short trial in Clayton, New Mexico, Tom was sentenced to hang. This was going to be a big occasion in Clayton, for they had never hanged anyone before. Practically the entire town turned out to see Blackjack catch him swing. But because they were such novices as the whole execution thing, the hangman forgot to remove a 200-pound sandbag attached to the rope used to test it out. That meant that when Black Jack Ketchum dropped through the hole, the additional weight caused the noose to yank extra tight, severing his head at the neck in front of the horrified crowd. It seems difficult to believe, but nearly the same thing happened again in Arizona in 1930 to a prisoner named Ava Dugan after being tried and convicted of murdering a chicken farmer named Andy Mathis. Once again, when the trapdoor sprung open, something went wrong with the rope and it tore Dugan's head off and sent it rolling within a few feet of the screaming spectators. Three men and two women fainted. The sight left such an indelible stain on the state's correction system, they were forced to switch to using the gas chamber after that. Back in 1894, a man named George Painter was led to the gallows after being convicted of murdering his lover, Alice Martin, in their Chicago home. Painter professed his innocence right up until his last moments. His final words before the hood was placed over his head were about his desire for the real killer of his girlfriend to be found. But after the trapdoor was released and his body went hurtling down, the weight of his body caused the rope to break. But, even still, it had managed to do part of the job. Doctors who examined Painter realized that the man's neck was indeed broken, but he was still clinging to life. So the executioners did the only thing they could think to do. They replaced the noose with a new rope, put the hood back over painter's head, and hanged him again. This time it did the deed. Throughout history, there were at least two men who seemed predestined to avoid the hangman's noose, despite the best efforts of their executioners. The first of whom was an Englishman named Joseph Samuel, who was convicted of robbery in 1795 and was transported to the Sydney Cove Penal Colony in Australia. But after he escaped from prison, Samuel reportedly killed a policeman during a subsequent attempted robbery. He and an accomplice were both convicted and sentenced to hang. While Samuel's accomplice's execution went off without a hitch, this wasn't the case with Samuel himself. The first time they tried hanging Samuel, the rope snapped and he remained uninjured. Then they tried it again and the same thing happened again. On the third attempt, the noose unraveled the astonished provost marshal sped off on horseback to report this man they apparently could not hang. An hour later, he returned with a reprieve in his pocket, and Samuel was then returned to prison to live out a life sentence. History would repeat itself almost a century later in even more spectacular fashion to a convicted murderer named John Henry George Lee, who is most often referred to in the history books as John Babacombe Lee. He was a former sailor in the Royal Navy convicted in 1885 of the brutal murder of an elderly woman named Emma Keyes, although the evidence against Lee was weak and mostly circumstantial. And Lee continued to profess his innocence throughout his trial. On February 23, 1885, John Lee was led from his cell in the penitentiary at Exeter, England, to the gallows. They draped the hangman's noose around his neck and stood him on the trapdoor. After a few minutes, the sheriff of Exeter waved his hand, giving the order for them to draw the bolt. Only the trapdoor didn't open. This was especially annoying because they had just tested the trapdoor a short while earlier, and it had worked fine then. Some workers inspected the bolt and mechanism for the trapdoor, and everything seemed to be in working order. Once more, the sheriff gave the order to pull the bolt, and once again the door beneath John Lee's feet refused to budge. The sheriff angrily barked orders that Lee be taken back to his cell. couldn't believe all the incompetence he had working for him. The sheriff then had another man stand on the trapdoor, not with a noose around his neck, of course, and gave the order again to draw the bolt. This time the door opened without a hitch, and the stand-in dropped through the hole just the way he was expected to. The guards went and retrieved John Lee once again, and as I'm sure you're probably expecting by now, when they threw the bolt... The trapdoor again refused to open. By now, the sheriff was purple faced and livid. He screamed that they'd try it one more time, but John Lee remained unhanged. Eventually, the matter would be debated in the British courts, leading all the way up to the House of Commons just what to do with this apparently unkillable prisoner. They decided not to execute him again and instead commuted his sentence to life he continued to plead his case to subsequent home secretaries over the following years and would eventually be set free. Although the hangman's noose was one of the most widely used methods of execution, it too would eventually be retired for other methods. Technology and innovation led the way to finding new and more efficient ways to execute prisoners. But change often comes slowly. It may surprise you to learn that the last person publicly executed by guillotine in France happened in 1939 the condemned prisoner in that case was a man named eugene weidman who had been convicted of kidnapping and murdering several people what's probably even more shocking than that is that france continued executing people by guillotine privately all the way up to the final person to have his head placed on the chopping block quite a long time after that this unlucky prisoner was a convicted murderer named hamida Jandoubi who had his head chopped off in 1977. That's right. The same year Star Wars came out, France was still using the same method of execution that they'd been using since the French Revolution. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Throughout the 1870s and early 1880s, a new type of lighting known as arc lights began being used in cities around the world. These massive lights required high voltages of electricity in the range of 3,000 to 6,000 volts. This, of course, led to a lot of accidents as well. One such incident occurred in Buffalo, New York on August 7, 1881, when a drunken dock worker snuck into an electric company powerhouse and grabbed the brush and ground of a large electric dynamo. He died instantly. But, whereas most people were, dare I say, shocked by the news of the man's death, a dentist named Alfred P. Southwick saw the potential presented by this gruesome story. Southwick, along with another physician named George Fell, and the head of the Buffalo ASPCA, began experimenting with what they saw as a more humane method of ridding the city of the thousands of stray dogs and cats roaming free. Electrocuting them. Southwick would later take his research and begin to advocate that his method of humanely electrocuting animals could be just as easily applied to human beings as well. He began to scale up his designs and modified one of his own dental chairs to come up with the very first electric chair. By that point in history, a series of botched hangings, much like those I've previously described, were causing death penalty advocates to begin looking elsewhere for a more humane method to kill people. Around this same time, what has become known as the War of the Currents began brewing between two historical giants. Legendary inventor Thomas Edison who advocated for the use of a direct current power system, and George Westinghouse, who favored his own alternating current. When Edison began losing the battle with Westinghouse, he knew he had to make a bold move. So Edison began sending his own consultants out to help with the testing of death by electrocution in order to demonstrate how dangerous Westinghouse's AC current really was. Edison's consultants staged several public electrocutions of dogs, and would eventually scale up the test to electrocuting a horse at Edison's West Orange Laboratory. By the year 1889, a bill was signed by the New York governor allowing for the electric chair to be used on condemned prisoners. The first person scheduled to fry was a convicted murderer named Joseph Chaplow. But, after his sentence was commuted to life imprisonment, the state was forced to look for another guinea pig. They landed on William Kemmler, an alcoholic vegetable peddler who murdered his common-law wife with a hatchet in a drunken rage. The day after they electrocuted the horse, they led Kemmler out of his cell and strapped him to the electric chair. The generator was charged with 1,000 volts, which was estimated to be enough to stop the man's heart. A metal restraint was placed on Kemmler's head. Kemmler told the executioners to take their time and do it properly. He was in no hurry. The switch was thrown and electricity jolted through the man's body for 17 seconds. At first, the doctor, Edward Charles Spitzka, declared Kemmler dead. But then, some of the witnesses began to notice that Kemmler still appeared to be breathing. The doctor hurried to examine the man again and realized he had made a mistake. Kemmler was indeed still alive. Spitzka shouted that they needed to turn the machine on again, only this time to double the voltage. 2,000 volts surged through Kemmler's body. Blood vessels ruptured beneath his skin. His hair under the metal cap began to smolder. The stench throughout the chamber was horrendous as Kemmler's hair and flesh began to cook. Following the execution, newspaper reporters tried to outdo one another with even more sensational descriptions of what had occurred during the execution. Some reporters later erroneously reported the man's body had caught fire. George Westinghouse himself would later comment that they would have done better using an axe. As I am sure you are aware, despite the bad press from the execution, George Westinghouse's AC current became the national standard for electric current. But Thomas Edison still managed to do alright for himself financially, considering he held the patent on the electric filament light bulb, which would inevitably be powered by Westinghouse's AC current. The death of William Kemmler would be just the first of many such executions by electric chair. Over the decades, prisons would continue to develop their methods using old Sparky, but even into the modern day, horrific mistakes continue to occur. It took a total of three tries and 14 agonizing minutes to put to death an Alabama man named John Evans in April 1983. In 1999, the state of Florida had to build a special oversized electric chair to accommodate a convicted mass murderer, named Alan Lee Davis. Witnesses to the man's execution described the scene as brutal. Blood poured from his mouth and onto the front of his white prison shirt. A Florida state senator who saw the execution photos later claimed to see the shape of a cross in the blood, which she took as a sign that God approved. In May of 1990, a convicted murderer and rapist named Joseph Tafaro had to be shocked three times in order to end his life. It turns out the executioners had used a synthetic sponge instead of the natural sponge that was supposed to be used. Witnesses claimed to have seen flames erupting from Tafaro's head. Inmates throughout the prison claimed they could still smell Tefero's cooked flesh weeks later. Perhaps worst of all is that after Tafaro was put to death, one of his accomplices came forward claiming responsibility for the murder he had been convicted of. This revelation brings up perhaps the single best argument against the use of capital punishment. What if the person you're attempting to execute is innocent of the crime they've been convicted of? This isn't a situation you get a lot of do-overs with. Not often, at least. On May 3rd, 1946, a 17-year-old black teenager named Willie Francis was led to a date with Gruesome Gertie. That was the nickname given to Louisiana's electric chair. Francis had been convicted of murdering a white pharmacist, although the evidence against him was practically non existent. Captain F.E. Foster and an inmate named Vincent Venezia acted as Francis's executioners that day. When he was given the order, Foster threw the switch and the electricity jolted through Francis's body. Except when they turned the power off, Francis was still breathing. You see, Gruesome Gertie was designed to be a mobile unit to be used at multiple penitentiary. And it turned out the two executioners had gotten drunk the night before and set the machine up improperly. When Foster realized Francis wasn't dead, he reportedly shouted at the young man that he'd get him next week. But Francis wasn't executed the following week. When news broke about the botched execution, many people viewed it as an act of God. Media coverage began to draw unwanted attention to the terrible injustice in Francis's case as a poor black youth in an overtly racist community. Sixteen months earlier, in November of 1944, someone shot Andrew Thomas, a white pharmacist in Francis' hometown of St. Martinville. Two months went by with no arrests, and eventually the sheriff, E.L. Resweber, called in Francis for questioning. According to Ressweber, Weber, he found the murdered pharmacist's wallet and identification card in Francis's possession. Although a great deal of evidence suggests these were planted. But within hours of his arrest, the sheriff had a signed confession in hand. Although the police denied any coercion, the confession itself reads as if it had been dictated by a policeman. The gun involved in the case was supposedly stolen by Francis from a sheriff's deputy but the deputy in question had actually reported the gun missing two months before the murder. Furthermore, the gun was never examined for fingerprints, and the bullets in Thomas' body were never matched to the pistol. Then, both the gun and the bullets were mysteriously lost en route to the FBI for analysis. Even more suspicious, as I just mentioned, the gun had once belonged to one of the sheriff's deputies, well, that particular deputy was on record as having publicly threatened Thomas's life after learning the pharmacist may have been having an affair with the man's wife. With such an apparent miscarriage of justice occurring, Willie Francis's father managed to hire a local attorney named Bertrand de Blanc, who also just so happened to be the victim Andrew Thomas's best friend. Even de Blanc wasn't convinced Francis was the murderer. Over the next year, DeBlanc appealed Francis' execution on the grounds of double jeopardy, and that he had already been sent to the electric chair once. It wasn't his fault he lived through the experience. The case would work its way up to the United States Supreme Court, where the justices ruled 5-4 to four against Willie Francis. This occurred on the day before his 18th birthday. Despite ruling against Francis, Associate Justice Felix Frankfurter attempted to persuade the Louisiana Governor Jimmy Davis to grant clemency to Francis. But, unfortunately, he failed, and on May 9, 1947, Willie Francis went to the electric chair for the second and final time. A story like that of Willie Francis speaks directly to the injustice found in the legal system. You hear all the details of the case and realize many people knew full well that an innocent man was going to be put to death. Yet no one stepped forward to do the right thing and prevent it from happening. And after hearing a story like that, you may think it can't possibly get any worse than that. Well, it has. Joe Arity was born on April 29, 1915 to Henry and Mary Arity in Pueblo, Colorado. His parents were both Syrian immigrants and neither one of them spoke much English. It became apparent early on that Joe was born different. He had a severe mental impairment that caused him to be labeled an imbecile by a school psychologist. Joe only attended public school for one year. He was tested as having an IQ of 46 which led him to being sent at age 10 to the Colorado State Home Training School for Mental Defectives in Grand Junction, Colorado. Joe was never able to learn the alphabet or even his colors. He couldn't identify the days of the week, and he could only speak in short, choppy sentences. Joe was often bullied at the training school, and he never made many close friends. He had a tendency to wander away from the school grounds, sometimes for days at a time. But he always seemed to find his way back eventually. One thing you should know about Joe is that he loved trains more than anything. Sometimes when he wandered away from the school, he would be seen climbing on top of the trains passing through town to take a ride. He continued to live at the Colorado State home until 1936 when he hopped one more train, only this time he never came back. Joe was next heard from when he was arrested on vagrancy charges in a Cheyenne, Wyoming train yard on August 26th. Just 11 days prior, a 15-year-old girl named Dorothy Drain was beaten to death with an axe in her bedroom in Pueblo, Colorado, while she slept. Her 12-year-old sister, Barbara, was also attacked, but survived. When Sheriff George Carroll heard that Joe came from Pueblo, he jumped to the immediate conclusion that Joe must have been responsible for the murders. A few years earlier, Sheriff Carroll had made a name for himself for helping take down the legendary Ma Barker gang and it appears the sheriff was desperate to regain some of his past glory. After interviewing Joe for hours, Sheriff Carroll told the newspapers that Joe Arity had confessed to the beatings. Carroll produced a detailed confession that was allegedly written by Joe. Although he was never able to explain how a man who didn't know the alphabet or even speak in complete sentences could have possibly written it, But by that point, the police had already arrested a suspect named Frank Aguilar for Dorothy's murder. Barbara and Dorothy Drain's father had been Aguilar's supervisor at the Works Progress Administration. And the two men had had a falling out. Once Barbara recovered enough to speak, she immediately identified Frank Aguilar as her lone attacker. After police arrested Aguilar, they even discovered an axe in his possession that matched the weapon used to attack the girls but instead of coming clean and admitting he had made a mistake, the next morning Sheriff Carroll changed his story and now claimed that Joe had confessed to working with an accomplice named Frank to commit the murder. Aguilar would later admit in court that he was guilty. He even tried to change his plea from guilty to not guilty by reason of insanity. Frank Aguilar was sentenced to death. The name Joe Arity was never mentioned once during the man's trial. On April 17, 1937, Joe Arity was found guilty of being an accessory to the beatings and sentenced to death. He was sent to Colorado State Prison where the warden, Roy Best, took a liking to him. Joe was sweet and childlike. It was clear that he had no idea what was happening to him. Warden Best called Joe the happiest man who ever lived on death row. Over time, Warden Best brought Joe picture books and toys for him to play with. Even though Joe was surrounded by some of the worst members of society, everyone seemed to like him and they enjoyed playing with him. On Christmas 1938, Warden Best gave Joe a toy train as a present. Joe was overjoyed with the train and he played with it constantly. He loved to wind it up and send it down the corridor to another inmate named Norman Wharton. Wharton had been convicted of killing a police officer. For hours on end, Wharton would wind the train up and send it back to Joe. Sometimes some of the other inmates would knock the train over as it passed their cells. Joe would giggle uncontrollably and yell, A rack! A wreck!" Then the other prisoners or one of the guards would set the train back up and send it on its way. An attorney from Denver named Gail Ireland took up Joe's case and attempted to overturn his conviction. Ireland managed to stay the execution nine times. But in January 1939, Joe's time was up. The Colorado Supreme Court upheld the conviction, and a date was set for Joe's execution. He was 23 years old at the time. On January 6, 1939, Joe Arity was offered his last meal. He didn't understand the concept of what a last meal meant, but he asked for ice cream, and he got lots of it. Father Albert Schaller visited Joe in his cell and read him his last rites. Joe had to be told the prayer just a couple words at a time because that was all he could remember. Afterwards, Joe awkwardly hugged his crying mother and posed for some pictures. When it came time to lead him out of his cell, Joe asked if he could take his train with him to the gas chamber. The warden tried as he could to explain that Joe had to leave it behind and that he wouldn't be coming back for it. Joe didn't understand, insisting that he wouldn't die. Father Schaller told Joe he could trade his train for a golden harp in heaven. Joe looked sadly down at his precious train, then tentatively handed it to the priest and told him to give it to his friend and cellmate, Angelo Agnes. Warden Best and Father Schaller walked Joe down the long corridor to the gas chamber. Joe got scared when they tried to blindfold him but the warden held his hand, and Joe finally relaxed and gave a little smile. Warden Best and Father Schaller left the room, and the warden gave the order to proceed. Cyanide pellets were dropped into an acid creating a toxic gas that filled the airtight chamber. After only a few breaths, Joe Arity fell still. Following Joe Arity's execution, a group called the Friends of Joe assembled to try to correct this gross miscarriage of justice. They got together the funds to build a large headstone, the only one like it on Woodpecker Hill in Greenwood Cemetery. It includes a photo of Joe playing with his beloved train. When the stone was first erected, the group was not allowed to inscribe any statements on it other than his name and dates of birth and death. For several years, volunteers, along with Denver attorney David Martinez, worked tirelessly to bring attention to Joe's story. On January 7, 2011, Colorado Governor Bill Ritter issued an unconditional pardon a full 72 years after Joe's execution. It was the first posthumous pardon in Colorado's history. Now today, to the left of Joe's headstone, stands a framed copy of the official pardon. Afterwards, the group was finally allowed to add a new inscription to Joe Arity's headstone. Here lies an innocent man. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. I wanted to remind you that if you're interested in helping support the show, we currently have a Patreon account set up. Patrons of the show get access to all sorts of bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our bonus mini-episodes. Another great way you can help support the show is by subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, we're also on Stitcher, Google Play, and many of your other favorite podcast apps. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Elsewhere, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And if you're interested, you can even drop us a line at theconspiratorspodcast at com and let us know how we're doing. Thanks again for tuning in, and I hope you'll be back next time.